I'd like to ask you to turn as we begin to the 16th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, which will set forth one idea that we would like to talk about uh, for this morning. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. says this, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Peter speaks for the disciples but certainly for himself in particular when he answers Jesus' question about Jesus' identity with this critical confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you know your Bible and you know the other gospel accounts, you may recall that these words are somewhat familiar, and in particular these two ideas of who Jesus is when you get to the end of the Gospel of John. And John tells us why he writes his gospel. And he says toward the end of that gospel, that these things have been written that you may know that Jesus is who? The Christ, the Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. This is how we need to identify Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the promised anointed King of Israel. And that he is the Son of God. And that if we recognize him as such, and if we put our faith in him as such, then we will have eternal life in his name. Peter has made a correct confession, one that is necessary for salvation. It is a true confession, as Jesus says here, the Father revealed it to him. This is one that depends upon God to bring it about, similar to what we talked about last time when we talked about conversion. But it is necessary and it is the entry point for anyone into the Christian life. Believing who Jesus is. This is why we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about the importance of the gospel and of conversion. We need to understand what Jesus has done. And then we need to understand what it means to turn from our lost state into being saved by him. But that's not all there is to the Christian life. There is more to it than simply becoming one. 
We don't just become Christians with a right confession and understand how that happened and then go about the rest of our lives however we want to, although that is certainly the manner of many people. And we don't just go about it in a way that is sort of vaguely Christian, but there is something else that's going on in God's design. And Jesus mentions that here in verse 18. He says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. I will build my church. Here Jesus introduces his readers, and Matthew in particular introduces the readers of his gospel to this idea of the church. For the very first time in this gospel, it is mentioned here. I will build my church. And what it speaks of is Jesus' plan not only to have people who sort of in a scattered uncoordinated way believe the message of the gospel but that these people will be gathered into an assembly and as it turns out particular local assemblies in which they will carry out their role in the world as Christians and so Jesus doesn't simply leave people to live the Christian life on their own he instead says I'm going to build a people a people who gather, a people who are gathered, a people who will come together to accomplish the purposes which I have. And it is this church which is not then the means to some other end in the world, but rather it is the end of what God is doing in the world. This is what Jesus is building. He doesn't speak of building other institutions in this world, though he certainly will bring his kingdom and he is making people even now to be part of that kingdom, citizens of that kingdom. But nonetheless, in this world, what he is doing, what he is building is the church. This is his purpose. And so we as Christians need to have a, an accompanying priority on the same thing that Jesus does, namely building the church. He is going to build it, but we as the body of Christ are supposed to play our part and fulfill our role in actually bringing this about. We are the instruments that he uses as individual Christians to build up and establish the church. And we'll see more of this when we get in a little bit to Ephesians chapter 4, among other places. Now, why is it that we neglect to do this? It's very easy to neglect the place of the church in Christian Ministry, And this happens for a number of reasons uh, across time, but some of them particular to our age. For example, uh, a high view of a right to privacy in our culture. Our culture esteems privacy greatly. Closed windows, closed doors, homes where we sort of huddle up and we protect ourselves from being vulnerable to other people. We don't want to get to know other people. We don't want to be involved with other people. Some of this stemming from an unwillingness or even a lack, a right lack of desire to be legalistically and wrongly judged, but others simply because it's easier when people don't know you and you don't know them. So we don't want to gather together with other Christians and live life in a way that the Bible describes. Instead, we just kind of want to do our own thing in our own world, only putting ourselves out there to the extent that we think is fit rather than being together in life with other people. The church has fallen on hard times in some people's priority list because of an importance that this world and its media and its culture places upon 
politics and governmental issues and the building of a nation or nation states and how this is constantly thrust upon us as the most important thing that we need to care about at all times. And if we don't, and if we don't speak up, and if we don't act, then we are failing in our responsibility not only as citizens, but even some would say as Christians. We are told over and over again, both explicitly and implicitly, to put the state first in the list of things that we should give our attention to and care about. And this gets in the way of prioritizing the local church. There is here um, a problem as well with digital technology. Digital technology, which has been the means which has helped many people come to sound Bible teaching, which has been the means by which many of us are enabled to understand the scriptures better, to communicate and do certain things better. It has brought great blessing to us as a church and to the world, but it also enables on the other side certain things such as finding all of our spiritual influence from someone far away. From being able to beam in or to live stream or to simply watch things that go on in church rather than participating in particular when it is within our power to be involved. And we think why would we be involved in the local church when we can find the best preacher in the world or we can find the best music in the world at the touch of a button or even just a voice command. Modern culture downplays personal connections, personal investment in people. Everything is at a distance. On top of this, the local church is seen as unimportant because we have uh, celebrity culture. We have a culture filled with influencers setting an example that the people that really matter in this world are the people that you follow not so much the people that you actually know personally. All of these things fight against the idea that someone would be involved with real people in an actual place with personal commitment, being open to them and them being open to you so that you can carry out the Great Commission in the way that God has actually told us to do so in his word. It's easy to lose our focus when we are trying to carry out the goals that Scripture lays out for Christian ministry, we give weight only to individual aspects. We give weight to things outside the church. We just assume that the things that the culture says are good tools and good practices are, in fact, good, and we don't question how they might get in the way of what we actually are supposed to carry out. But the Bible helps us. There are many things that are potentially valuable and useful, and they're not to be despised, but they're not the same thing as the church, and they're not the same thing as doing what God has laid out for us to do. And what I want to do today is to show you the importance of the church, and in particular, the local church in God's sight, and to show you why your ministry as a Christian Your Christian life and your service to other people ought to prioritize the local church in noticeable ways as you serve Jesus Christ. Now, an important disclaimer is that not all ministry is to be done physically at church. 
Sometimes people hear about the importance of the local church or prioritizing the local church and the only thing that they can think of is what happens within these walls or when the church is gathered together. And this would actually be something of a low view of the importance of the church because it only thinks of the church in terms of how it is for that particular time when it's together. Um, Not all ministry is done with other people from the church directly present. It doesn't have to necessarily have someone else involved who is part of your church to be ministry that is connected to your church in some way. We need to reframe the way that we think about this. But nonetheless, faithful ministry as a Christian cannot be done at the end of the day apart from faithful participation in a local church. Faithful ministry as a Christian cannot be done apart from faithful participation in a local church. I want to show you why that is. And I want to show you this, that the people who do biblical ministry are people who love and prioritize the church. People who do biblical ministry are people who love and prioritize the church. And so to ensure that you're on the path to faithful ministry, I want to show you three core actions that you should take. Convictions or actions that you need to take concerning ministry and the local church. If you want to be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ and you want to not neglect this wonderful, vital instrument that he has given, this institution that Jesus is building, I want to show you three things you need to do to make sure that you are following the correct path on this. First thing that we need to do if we're going to prioritize properly the local church is this. We need to adopt God's view of the church's importance. We need to adopt God's view of the church's importance. Ephesians chapter 5, if you'd like to look there, tells us something of this. Uh, There are a lot of implicit things throughout the scripture, but this one is one of the most explicit statements. Um, The church is the bride of Christ for which he died. It is the bride of Christ for which he died. Ephesians 5 verse 25 will begin, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless. Jesus' love for the church sets the example for the way that husbands are supposed to love their wives, but it is nonetheless a message and a statement about the fact that Jesus loved the church. The church is Jesus' bride. This is clearly the picture here. He goes on to say that this is a reference, a mystery, verse 32, a reference to Christ and the church, that marriage pictures Christ and the church and that relationship of bride and groom. But here it says that he loved the church and there is a particular love that Jesus has for the church. Jesus doesn't just love the church the way that we might love a certain flavor of ice cream. Jesus loved the church and this is singled out as a subset of the love that Jesus has. It is a specific love for the church, not so much over against other people, but that sort of neglects anyone outside of the church with this particular kind of love or any institution outside of the church in comparison to this particular kind of love. We know that God is gracious and kind and even loving in many ways toward the entire world. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust, does he not? Matthew chapter 5 tells us 
But there is a particular love that Jesus has for the church that we ought to recognize as the foundation for why we should love the church. God's view of the church is this, Christ died for the church. And we ought also to place the same value upon it as he did. Now, a second truth about the church's importance is that it is the body of Christ. If you look back a couple of books into 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, this is what Paul says about the body of Christ. He says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Paul is teaching a message about the fact that even though there is diversity among Christians, they are all part of the same one body of Jesus Christ because all of them were placed at their conversion by the Spirit of God into union with Christ and therefore are part of this metaphorical body of Christ. He is the head, we are the body, and we fill out Christ in the world. The church is his body. And Paul takes this overarching principle and he just riffs on it all over the place in in other passages. 1 Corinthians 12, really all throughout this entire chapter. And Ephesians chapter 4. Now we've looked at Ephesians chapter 4 previously in this series. And what it pictures in Ephesians 4.12 is this idea. The building up of the body of Christ. It speaks of the building up of the body of Christ. And how the church itself is to go about the things that will turn the body of Christ, the church, into what it is supposed to be. This is done using spiritual gifts. This is done using ministry. But the point is, all the saints are supposed to serve and and labor and minister. And that results in the church being built up as Christ's body into what it's supposed to be. We ought to care for the church because it is Christ's body. Colossians 1.18 says he is also head of the body, the church. And of course, if the church is the body of Christ, then that makes it extremely important. It makes it important in God's sight, and it should make it important to us. A third truth about the importance of the church is that it is the household and dwelling place of God. The household and dwelling place of God. 1 Timothy Chapter 3, right in the middle of the book of 1 Timothy, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. And he's given a number of detailed instructions to Timothy, someone who knew well what Paul expected out of the gospel and out of the church. And yet he wrote these things nonetheless about the kinds of practices that should be there for prayer, for men and women, for the use of the gospel versus God's commandments in the law, uh, for leadership in the church. And he says this in verses 14 and 15 of 1 Timothy 3. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Well, what is the household of God? He says, it's the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. He takes this idea that the church is God's household. It's what God owns. It's where he lives, where he dwells. And he says, this is what the church is. And because of this, I've given you a number of instructions to follow because it is such an important institution that it needs to be done the right way. 
You can't just simply do this however you want to. I'm telling you, you have to follow the scriptures. You have to follow these instructions because this is God's house. It's really important. If you're making a custom home for a very wealthy client as a home builder, you're not just going to throw it together however you want and disregard the plans that he has and the instructions that he wants you to have. No, this is someone who matters to you. You need to make sure that this thing is done right. And so it is with the church. But often we take the gospel and we take the idea of the church and we turn it into something that fits us. It's our way. And that's true whether we are in leadership in the church and we want it to be a certain way or whether we are not in leadership of the church but we make certain demands upon a church that it would be something like this or that thing that I want before I'm willing to be part of it. Instead, we understand that the church is God's household He dictates the way that things are built. Now, along with this, there is a preciousness to it and a value. And so the church is not only God's household, but it's also his dwelling place or his temple. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul speaks of his building of this church, his building on the foundation of the gospel, on the foundation of Christ. And there are certain ways that he is being careful to build upon this. He says... um, You need to build upon it with gold and silver and precious stones rather than wood and hay and straw. And you need to make sure that you're doing things properly. But he also then says you need to be careful how you treat the church because of God's dwelling in it. 1 Corinthians 3 verses 16 and 17. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Now, you may uh, know here what's going on underneath this. There's something that's not quite visible immediately, which is uh, there is a particular form of the word you, which is the plural form. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we have a similar passage. It says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? In that form, it's the singular you. But here in 1 Corinthians 3, 16... When it says you are a temple of God, what he's saying is actually in the vernacular, y'all are a temple of God. Plural, you, all of you together as a church. It's not that you're the temple of God, you're the temple of God, you're the temple of God, and so on. Although that's the focus in another passage in 1 Corinthians 6. Here he's saying you as the church, as a whole, are the temple of God. God dwells in you or among you. He is in your midst as an institution, as an assembly, as a church. And he says, if any man destroys that, that temple, namely the church, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. God dwells in the church. It is where he lives. God has seen fit to make himself known in many ways throughout the scripture and he has seen fit to dwell among his people in many ways throughout the scripture he did this in the garden of eden he did this by providing an elaborate and intricate and very detailed system of sacrifices and buildings and other things instruments in the the tabernacle and temple system that wasn't to keep people away from god so much as it was to allow them to approach him as best as they could in a setting so that he could be among them The temple was made so that God could dwell among his people. And here it says that God dwells in the church. God is here today. God is among you as a church. 
so we need to care for the church with great care, not destroying his work, but rather caring for it, building it up in the way that he has said, because this is where God dwells. Number four, the church is where God displays his glory. Why, or excuse me, how does God view the church? Well, it is the place where he displays his glory. Look with me, if you will, in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3. In verse 8, Paul begins speaking of this in particular. He says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. Um, speaking of this apostleship, this gift and ability that he had to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, I'm the very least of all saints, but God gave me this grace of ministry to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, and then look at this, through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, God's wisdom might now be made known. Paul has said in verse 5, in other generations, this mystery of Christ was not made known to the sons of men, but now it has been revealed. Here, similarly, he says, with regard to the church, God is showing his wisdom to these angelic authorities, rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God wants them to see how wise he is. He wants them to see his character on display. And the place where he has chosen to make that visible is in the church. Through the church, God does this. Not just through saving individual souls, not through the glory and splendor of creation, as majestic and amazing as it is, but through the church. And so if we want to see God's wisdom made known to these angelic rulers so that God might be glorified not only among men, but also even among all created beings, then we ought to value the church. We ought to recognize that God is doing this through this institution. And as if that's not enough, he goes on to say, after praying, uh, he comes to the end of his prayer in verse 20. And he says this in the last two verses of Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, some of you might have expected the second part of that, which would be expected, wouldn't it? That he would say, to him be glory in Christ Jesus. After all, this is Christ. This is the Son. This is the gospel. And he doesn't bring Christ down by virtue, by virtue of doing this, but rather he brings the church up. And he says, God is being glorified in Jesus Christ, but also in the church. God puts his glory on display, not just in the gospel, not just in the person of Jesus Christ, but in the people that that gospel forms and in the institution that Jesus builds, and in the body which belongs to the head who is Christ. This is where God puts his glory on display. And so this doesn't mean that God doesn't care about other institutions. He does. Does God care about marriage? He's the one that invented it. 
Of course he does. Does God, God care how rulers rule? Well, of course he does. He's going to judge them. He gives a number of instructions in the scripture about how they are to, be, uh, how they are to rule and how they are to conduct themselves. He even tells us in 1 Timothy 2 that we should pray for them as they rule. So it's not that God doesn't care about these other things. God cares about many institutions and various components of them. But there's only one institution that Jesus said that he would build. And there's only one institution wherein God says he would display his glory. And that is in the church. And so we ought to also adopt this same view of the church that God has. Now with that said, it is not simply the church, broadly speaking, that we need to care about because there's something else we need to understand. And that is, secondly, we need to understand, we're not only adopting God's view of the church, but we need to understand the importance of the local church in particular. The importance of the church in its local manifestations, in its local forms. When I say that, what I'm referring to is simply the fact that there are such things as churches. It's not that they are local and they can never send anybody outside of them. It's not that they never go anywhere else. It's not that it's only the church that is here in our local area of, you know, of Knoxville, Tennessee. It's not that. It's just simply that there are such things as local assemblies, individual churches that are these gatherings of particular groups of believers. So we need to understand the importance of this. Why is that the case? Well, first of all, because the New Testament church appears in local assemblies or it manifests in local assemblies. You might even say it presents in local assemblies. How does it show up? Well, it does so in local churches. Now, there is such a thing as a universal church. We understand that. And some of the things and some of the ways that Scripture speaks about the church, it does so in those sort of broad terms. And this is especially true when it comes to the book of Ephesians in chapter 3 and 4 and 5, which we've already seen. It speaks in sort of general terms there. But it is only in and through local churches that the universal church actually appears in the world and functions in its fullness. This is the only way that it functions in its fullness. God did not want the church to simply operate and consist of merely whatever Christians happen to be in the world and whatever those Christians happen to do in the name of Christ once they were saved. And so when the missionaries went out in the New Testament, they didn't just go out and preach the gospel and then leave town and let everybody kind of figure things out on their own or just give them a copy of the scripture and then let them figure it out from there. What they did was to establish very notable, obvious local assemblies of believing Christians. They didn't simply preach the gospel and make converts and baptize them. They didn't simply do that and then even teach them. But what they did is gathered these converts into churches. Wherever they went, they started churches. And there's a reason they did this. In fact, not only did they start these churches, but they also made every effort before they moved on for them kind of for good to establish leaders over those churches so that they would make sure that the churches remained as churches and faithful churches long after the initial founders were gone. And from that point on, when the church was established, the default assumption was if you were a Christian, you would be very clearly connected with a local church. And this wouldn't be simply a formality like my name is on a membership list or that's where I was baptized or that's where I grew up or that's where my family goes to church. But this would mean that you were a consistent participant in the worship and life and ministry of that church. In 1 Corinthians 11, 
Paul uses the terminology of when you come together as a church, it is assumed that churches will gather, that they will gather regularly. In fact, this was such an assumed part of the fabric of the Christian life that the penalty for unrepentant sin, according to 1 Corinthians 5, was to prevent someone from being able to do that, to kick them out of the assembly, to have their privilege of attendance and fellowship revoked so that they could no longer gather together and they would be marked off as someone who is not part of this by virtue of their unrepentance. So it is that the New Testament church appears in local assemblies. We also need to understand the importance of the local church because local churches are the instruments of Christian ministry. The instruments of Christian ministry. And we talked at the beginning about a few goals that the New Testament lays out if you're going to categorize the things that we're supposed to do in ministry. Two of these were discipleship and transformation. Namely, bringing people to salvation in Jesus Christ, making them disciples as Jesus commands, and then teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded so that they would be changed and transformed. And the local church is part of that in that it is the setting where that takes place. It's the setting in which growth takes place. There is a kind of accountability to one another that cannot be replicated outside of the church. Because what you're doing is you're coming together, you're hearing the same stuff from the pulpit or the Sunday school class or the small group or whatever. These words that you're, that you're hearing and these truths that you're taking are now things which you know together that you're accountable to do, that you're accountable to carry out. And you can't just kind of go about this life on your own and say, well, yes, I know I heard that in a sermon on a podcast, but... You know, nobody else knows that I'm not doing this thing, so I guess I can get away with it. We have accountability to one another, and that helps us to be transformed. We have examples that we find in the body of Christ among one another as we see other people doing things that model the teaching of Jesus Christ for us. They do what Jesus said. We don't know what that looks like. They show us what that looks like, either directly by telling us or by simply being a good example of carrying those things out. Again, in a way which we wouldn't otherwise understand. The local church looks out for discipleship and transformation and teaching by virtue of qualified elders over the church who provide accountability and who watch over you and who are tasked with holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching as Titus 1 tells us so that we make sure that we are learning right doctrine and that that right doctrine is not simply just taught by someone who happens to be right and happens to sound interesting but it's someone who actually has been tested as to their character so that their character demonstrates that they're actually faithful to the word of God as a foundation for being qualified to teach teach it and it is the church which puts those people in those offices to the tests otherwise those leaders those elders have really no credibility to go about saying that they actually should be teaching you in the first place these are not the kinds of things that you can get simply by listening to recorded sermons or live stream or frankly even just showing up for a sermon and then leaving all this to say there's never less to the church's ministry than teaching and listening. But there's always more. There's always more. Now, I want to be clear. I hope you're listening 
to other things or reading other things beyond simply what you get here. Although it would be fine if you're not because these things were not available in the New Testament era. They're not prescriptive. No one even had a Bible of their own to take home. They could learn what they learned at the church, take it, dwell upon it, speak with one another within the local body. But I would still hope that you are availing yourself of the resources that we have today to listen to and read and learn from extra things. Nonetheless, those things are not in and of themselves sufficient to replace the ministry of the local church itself as the instrument of discipleship and transformation. Now, in addition to personal growth, what we find also is that our evangelism, our evangelistic efforts, our efforts to preach the gospel need to be connected with the local church. We should never just preach the gospel to someone and simply have no desire that they would then become part of a local church. It may not be that we're able to get to that particular part of the message. It may be that we focus upon the message of salvation because that's kind of all we have time to get to. But if we find someone and preach Christ to them, it should be our goal that we would bring them and connect them to the local church for many reasons. Not least of which is because they'll get to see what happens when a person has believed the gospel. And they'll get to see the testimony of changed lives and godly people who love one another as a testimony to the world that Jesus Christ is truly the Savior. So we ought to preach the gospel to people, but do so in a way that is connected with the local church. Again, whenever the missionaries in the New Testament went out... They didn't just make individual converts. They founded churches and they brought those people into gathered assemblies so that they might be built up then in the faith. So discipleship and transformation are uh, part of Christian ministry and local churches are the instrument of that. Local churches also are the instrument of particular kinds of worship that are not really able to be carried out elsewhere. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read about the church gathering together and they come together for fellowship with one another around the Lord's table. It describes there a gathered assembly of Christians in that particular place as well as in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And the mutual benefit that is provided and the way that they help one another to worship. Uh, Just listen to 1 Corinthians 14, 26. It says, this is just as an example, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. The worship of the church is not simply personal, but it is one which takes advantage of all the gifts that all the people in the body have. Of course, done in proper order, as this chapter goes on to say. But nonetheless, the goal is that we use these gifts when we come together to edify one another. And that this takes place in a way that is different and better than simply what can take place as you're singing a song in the car. We should worship God at all times, in all places. As Jesus told us in John chapter 4. But there is a unique way in which we gather together as a church to worship. That cannot be replaced by anything else. And ought to be something that we value and prioritize. So worship is a vital part of the church's ministry as well. And then thirdly there is the goal of love. Love. The Christian ministry. uh, The goals of Christian ministry is Uh, includes love and should be brought about by the agency of the church. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the goal of our instruction is love. And we are to carry out the one another's, in particular, love for one another in the body of Christ. 
Instruction takes place in the church. Correction takes place in the church. Accountability is there in the church. And apart from this local ministry, our love simply will not be what it ought to be. And it won't find the proper targets that it is supposed to have of one another within the church. Now, I just want to make one note here as well with regard to the importance of the local church. This is a little bit of a side note, but a third point underneath this heading. Uh, Local churches are autonomous yet not independent. I just want to make this, again, as a side note, because you might hear people talking about the local church. You might hear me talking about the importance of the local church and think that what I'm saying is that all that matters is this one particular church. The New Testament speaks of both sides of this issue of church connectedness. Um, On the one hand, local churches are governed autonomously, meaning govern themselves. They are not subject to some kind of higher structure on the earth. The scriptures rule the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. But it is the local assembly which is the highest earthly authority when it comes to the actual church. So what we do is we follow the Bible. We submit to Jesus Christ. But we do so and we don't look to some other agency, some denominational uh, structure to say that you are in charge of us and you make the decisions for us. Local churches are themselves autonomously governed. And yet, at the same time, this doesn't mean that local churches are independent from other churches. Local churches, according to 1 Corinthians 14.33, are to believe and practice the same things. He says, uh, as in all the churches of the saints. As in all the churches of the saints. He gives this. He says, look, this is what we practice everywhere. This is what everybody does. We're supposed to believe and practice the same things. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. So we need to believe the same things and practice the same things. And it ought to be our wish that every church would come to the unity of the faith as laid out in Scripture, that we believe the same things and that our practice, though it may appear different in certain external manifestations, is nonetheless the same thing. We practice what the Scripture says. Churches are not independent from other churches in that they care for each other. They help each other. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 gives a whole account of how the Gentile churches took up this offering, even out of their own poverty, to send money to the other churches in Jerusalem, the Jewish churches, so that they might have help and relief in their famine, in their need. These churches didn't say, well, we're autonomous and independent. We only care about ourselves and we'll just all meet each other in heaven. No, they loved each other. It says there that they yearned for one another. They longed to be together. There was a love that spanned across the geographical distance to other churches because they all were fellow believers in Christ. And we ought to have the same attitude, being willing to help other churches in need, being, having a love for other people in other churches that says we don't just confine ourselves to only loving and caring for people here. And yet there is a functional priority where we are put together in local assemblies. And so we ought to prioritize caring for the needs of that particular church. We ought to prioritize the relationships that are made more feasible by virtue of being together regularly, learning from the same things, practicing the same things, serving together, and so on. There ought then to be a love among all truly Christian churches for one another. 
And yet at the same time, simply saying that you're part of the universal church is insufficient. We need to connect with and value and prize and prioritize the local assembly that we are at that moment a part of. And that is the final point to make this morning, that we must, on the basis of these things, prioritize ministry in and through the local church. Prioritize ministry in and through the local church. First of all, I want to show you why, and then I want to show you how to do that. Just a few considerations. First of all, why? Why must this be the case? One reason is that the church carries, and this is a little countercultural, I understand, but nonetheless, I'll show you. Ministry, or the church, carries divine authority in ministry. Turn over with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. And you can also kind of look ahead to 2 Corinthians 8. Acts chapter 13. Uh, today, it seems that people have entire ministries that are built around some theme, some purpose, or maybe even their own personal brand. But these ministries have little to no connection to any particular local church, and certainly not any authorization or delegation by those local churches. But that's not the way the New Testament lays it out. Now in Acts 13, you have the Apostle Paul there, verse 25, Barnabas and Saul, uh, verse 25 of the previous chapter, Barnabas and Saul, also called Paul, returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So Saul, also called Paul, and Barnabas are there at Antioch. But there's someone else at Antioch. Verse uh, 1, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were there ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now here you have the Apostle Paul who had literally been called directly by Jesus Christ with a particular personal mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Jesus said, you are going to do this. And he spoke to him verbally, confronted him on the road and said, you're going to do this and here's how it's going to go and here's what your life is going to be like and you're going to keep on doing this. This is your mission. He had a personal divine revelation of his own mission. More than we could say. And yet here, something else goes on. Verse 2 says that the Holy Spirit says, uh, presumably through these prophets, by the way, who were there, the Spirit of God speaks through these prophets who have the gift of prophecy and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to. So here you have Paul, who is called here. You have the Spirit of God speaking through these prophets and saying it's time. But what happens? Do they just get up and leave? Do they just say, all right, well, we're on our way. No, what happens? Verse 3, then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. It is not Paul who decided on his own that he was going to go, even with a divine commission. But rather, the church is here, delegating authority, laying their hands upon him and saying, we are affirming you in this role and we are involving ourselves and we are sending you out. If there were ever a Christian who could have said, you know, I'm really gifted. You, you need to just listen to me. 
I'll do what I want, and I don't need the church's permission. It was Paul. And yet here he is being sent out and affirmed by a local church. Not only that, but after the mission was over, he came back. You read about it at the end of chapter 14, and he reports Acts 14, 27, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul saw himself as accountable to the local church, even as one who was an apostle who told the church what to do. There's one more example I want to show you in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8, there is a man who is famous in the gospel. Now, what an amazing statement that is. Famous in the gospel. We've got a lot of people today saying, that's my ticket. That's my avenue. I can use the gospel and I can get well-known. I can get a following. They might not say it out loud, but it is the motivation and driving force of their heart. And he says in 2 Corinthians 8.18, We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. So again, here is someone who is well-known in the gospel. And in fact, Paul is commending him. There's nothing wrong with him being famous in the gospel. Nothing wrong with him being well-known. He has been faithful, evidently. Evidently, he is gifted in some way to be able to carry out his gospel ministry in this particular kind of fashion. Uh, And yet... What does it say in verse 19? Not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work. He's been appointed by the churches. Here is someone who is famous, and yet he's not some Christian superstar, untethered from the authority and accountability of the churches. You even find here a joint project. It's not just one church. It doesn't just have to be that his ministry is confined to one place. It's not that no one can ever have an influence outside of their own particular local church. What a blessing it is when you have someone like this brother or someone like the Apostle Paul who can be a blessing to Christians on a broader scale. We thank God for such people, people who can be a blessing to us from the other side of the world if that's what it takes. What an amazing thing to have that kind of ministry. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when someone thinks that they're bigger than a local church. When they think that they are bigger than the local church. And what this shows is that there's never anyone, no matter how famous they are, who is bigger than the institution of the local church. It should never become untethered, such a person's ministry. It should never become more important than the local church. And when it does, it has misrepresented the Bible itself and the Bible's teaching on the church. So then, we need to make sure that when we're ministering, that we would follow and see the importance of our own involvement with, accountability to, and yes, even in many ways, authorization by the local church. Too many would-be ministers and ministries see the local church as simply an an annoying necessity that they kind of have to get rubber-stamped or even just an audience for their own more important mission they come to the church to raise funds or rubber stamp whatever pursuit that they've already tried to do or they have their ministry that they're going to do exactly whatever church they show up in they're going to do this thing in this way and this is how it's going to be that's not the way the bible lays it out we have gifts to be sure but the church is god's institution that he has designed and we are supposed to value that above any desires or even giftedness of our own The church authorizes, carries divine authority in ministry. Also, the church equips us for ministry. The church equips us for ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, as we've already read. 
It equips the saints for the work of ministry by virtue of teaching. The people who are given pastors and teachers equip the saints for the work of ministry. And we could even go farther and say that it is very difficult to carry out faithful ministry without the modeling and example that comes by virtue of people who go before you in that. People are coming up with innovative new ways to do things. But what they don't think about is how much the scripture places value upon ministering the way that someone else has already done. Hebrews 13, we are told to imitate the faith of our leaders. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, follow those, observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. And in 2 Timothy 3, Paul points to Timothy in verses 10 and 11 and says, look, Everybody else is out there doing their own thing, but you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. You saw it all, and you followed in my path, and you need to keep doing that. We need models for ministry just as much as we need anything else if we're going to minister faithfully. Thirdly, the church protects us in our ministry. How does the church help us? Why does ministry need to be connected to the local church? Because the church protects us in ministry. It is structured a certain way to protect us and do things the way that God describes. There is leadership and shepherding in the church to protect us doctrinally so that as we are ministering, we're not carried to and fro and tossed about by every wind of doctrine so that we don't get carried astray in our zeal to serve into following after wrong doctrine which will lead us into trouble. We know in 1 Timothy 4, it says that in the last days, many, many will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So what we need is faithful leadership to protect us from those things by teaching us the truth, modeling godliness, and watching out for us. It's not enough simply to have a desire to serve. What we need to make sure as well is that we are hemmed in by the Bible's teaching on our character and the content of what we would then teach to other people. So the church protects us in ministry. And then finally, why we need the church for ministry is because the church itself is a major outlet of ministry activity. The church itself is a major outlet of ministry activity. Now, as I've said earlier, not all ministry must be done toward other believers or in the gathered assembly or directly with another believer involved. We can be evangelistic and still prioritize the local church. We can care for other people in other churches and still prioritize the local church. We can do this during the week and not just when we're all together. Certainly these things are true. But it's also true that there are many commands in the New Testament that you simply cannot obey outside of doing these things toward one another in the church. You say, I'm going to be godly, and the church is kind of an optional accessory to that. Maybe it equips me for that, it helps me for that, but I can kind of then kind of do everything on my own. Well, you can't do that because so many of the commands in the Bible have to do with the way that you treat other people in the church itself. Much of godliness consists in what you do in the church, and there is no other outlet for certain commands that are there. Ministry to the saints is commanded, Galatians 6.10, Hebrews 6.10. We are supposed to care for Christ's body, the members of the body, as we gather together, 1 Corinthians 14. And so we need to recognize that the church is this outlet for ministry. Let me give you then just a few ways to consider how you might prioritize this. How might you prioritize the local church in your ministry? I'll just give you a few key words. First of all, participate. Participate. 
Be part of a church. Regularly attend and be deliberate in joining a local church. Participate in the life of the church in that making sure you know people well and that you try to know them well. This requires spending time with them. This requires perhaps some awkward conversations on your part. This requires letting people into your home that you might not otherwise invite. This requires spending time with people that you might not pick at the outset to be with. Be with other people. Get to know them. Serve them. Secondly is just that. Serve. So participate. Serve. Listen for ministry opportunities and take them. Look for needs in the church and in individuals who are in the church and and meet them. Look out for those things. This often means sacrifice of your time and preferences and resources and things that you might otherwise do if the church didn't exist. Serve in the church. Thirdly, remember the church in your decisions. Remember it. Prioritize the church. When you're thinking about taking a job or moving to a new home, is the church in your mind when you do those things? Are you thinking about how those decisions will affect your current church, your future church, your ability to find a future church? Do you think about how, will, how it will affect your ability to be involved in the church? Remember the church when you make your decisions. You say, well, my ministry is my job and my family. Well, those are certainly areas in which we serve as well. But rather than using them as a cover for our neglect of the church, we ought to recognize that we won't even minister well at our job or in our family the way that we ought if we're not being equipped and edified and held accountable by the local church itself. And even if we were, there's an entire set of responsibilities we have to the church. Finally, participate, serve, remember, And then, um, this is not a verb, but it's just one another's. The one another's. How do you know if you are prioritizing the local church? Are you carrying out the one another's? Love one another, care for one another, show tolerance, encourage, forgive, build up, speak truth to, prefer one another. Many such commands. If you're doing these things, then you may be faithfully participating, prioritizing the local church in your personal ministry. Jesus loved the church. He said he'd build the church. He said that he died for the church. We ought also to love the church in the same way. The way we carry that out is in local assemblies. Right now you're here in this one, or perhaps you may be visiting from another one. Whatever it might be, I would encourage you to take these things to heart and begin to live more in a way which prioritizes this wonderful institution that God has given us and made us to be a part of. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have given us the church. Help us to love it. Help us to uh, take care to consider it in all that we do. And may you build up this local body and all of your churches all across the world so that you might show your glory in them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.